0: Welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VJ Hemonk, an open access video journal that provides healthcare professionals with trusted and up-to-date information in Hemonk through innovative digital media. Today, we're joined by Amir Zaidan, who leads an exciting discussion on the treatment and management of lower risk MDS, including diagnostic approaches and associated challenges, current management of disease, as well as future novel therapeutic options for MDS patients.
1: Hi everyone. Thank you for joining us in this uh, episode of MDS sessions where we'll be talking about uh, the management and the diagnosis of lower risk MDS, uh, including the current available options, but also some of the exciting new developments. And part of the focus will be on how the diagnosis of MDS, especially in the early stages, can be quite tricky and take some advice from uh, a very good group of experts that I'm very happy to be joined with today. Uh, so today I have uh, Dr. Valeria Santini, an associate professor of medicine and the director of the MDS section in the University of Florence. I have Dr. Toyosi Odeniki, who's a um, professor of um, medicine and the director of the leukemia program at the University of Chicago. And last but not least, uh, I have Dr. Rami Komrogji, and um, often known as Rami komroji but it's Rami komroji uh, who is a professor of medicine and uh, the director of uh, MDS and leukemia research at Moffitt Cancer Center. Thank you all for being with us um, today. Uh, so maybe I can start with uh, with Valeria. So Valeria, you, you've done a lot of work in, in the area of um, lower-risk MDS, and I think one of the challenges that we often see in In our patients is that until now we still get some patients who are diagnosed with lower risk MDS who turn out to have other things you know whether it's um, uh, you know vitamin deficiencies or drug effects or immune conditions. How often do you see that and what is your um, recommended recommended diagnostic approach for, for people to do in general?
2: This is a very good point to raise in fact, uh, uh, in the past we were underdiagnosing um, the MDS status, whereas now everything that is anemia or cytopenia is MDS, which as you pointed out is not really true for uh, many patients. There are many conditions and comorbid conditions that lead to um, chronic anemia as we know. Um, you would be surprised of, uh, of in, in finding, as you mentioned, some uh, vitamin deficiency, but most, uh, we have to recognize some specific cases like the multifactorial anemia of the elderly. And that is a little bit um, difficult, in fact, because um, uh, they may have dysplastic features in the marrow. They may have dyserythropoiesis, but this is not the dyserythropoiesis of MDS. Therefore, Uh, We require a very careful examination of the bone marrow aspirate indeed. Of course, uh, hypothyroidism uh, has to be ruled out, and then, uh, well, I I don't want to speak about uh, renal insufficiency because it seems to be quite a clear uh, thing to uh, uh, roll out immediately. But as a matter of fact, this is uh, easy to say, not very easy to uh, put in practice in your everyday clinic because there may be cases in which the diagnosis is very, very difficult. And I just want to mention the fact that sometimes even hemolytic uh, aminemia can be uh, disguised as MDS. So. Uh, uh reaching the diagnosis of MDS is uh, far to be simple and far to be straightforward.
1: You know, those are great points. Uh, Rami, how often do you check things like copper deficiency or LGL or PNH? Do you have like a, a standard uh, assay that you send on every single patient or do you do sequential testing based on the specific circumstances in which a patient presents? Yeah. So
3: I think all the points Valeria raised, I I agree with. And what we used to do here, we used to have like a new patient panel for the MDS patients that we will check all those things most of the time, because also we often serve as a consulting, you know, second opinion. So we will get them all together. So we'll get like, you know, B12, folate, iron levels, copper levels, PNH flow and LGL. I, I have to say that, You know after one and accumulating a lot of this information in our database it's probably not cost effective to do it in every single patient i think you have to be targeted a little bit and now you do this obviously the basic things i think you always have to rule out you know b12 deficiency and stuff like that but uh, like we've looked at the pnh and most of the low risk mds like you rarely will find something that Is really actionable or will explain the cytopenia unless there is some clinical indicators such like any evidence of hemolysis, high LDH, uh, low haptoglobins that will make you think for PNH. We do observe a lot of LGL clones in MDS like we just published on this recently maybe obviously 20% of the patients will have it but again most of the time it's like a bystander, an immune reaction in some cases where you see severe neutropenia, some fibrosis in the bone marrow, doesn't look straightforward like MDS, maybe checking LGL is helpful. And then finally for the couple, like I really usually mostly emphasize checking it in patients with ring sidroblast subtype, especially if they have no evidence of somatic mutation like SF3B1. I always tell the fellows, an anecdote I saw a patient this year was one year on azacitidine and diagnosis labeled as MDSRS, but it was SF3B1 negative, and the patient had, like, you know, trilineage cytopenia, not just, you know, which always triggers in your mind, like, it's not usual for MDSRS to have, you know, pancytopenia. And the patient actually did have copper deficiency and with replacement counts recovered completely. So, so in the subset with ring sideroblast, if there is no SF3B1, I strongly recommend checking the copper levels, especially with known risk factors for copper deficiency.
1: Yeah, no, th- this is a great example. And, you know, I actually use the same example often with copper and B12 deficiency. I've definitely seen cases like this. And, of course, um, you know, I think with EPO or other type of replacements, not as problem. But once you start thinking about um, HMAs, bone marrow transplant, this is, I think, a situation where you really want to be 100% sure that this is, a, you know, this is a, a malignant uh, process. Along those lines, uh, to Yossi, So, um, the use of molecular testing, um, Rami was talking about, you know, cost effectiveness and, you know, there is a lot of variation, I think, in terms of using these next-gen sequencing panels and whether you use a targeted one or do you use like a big panel and on which setting do you use it, Uh, and and, and especially in lower-risk MDS where the issue is more to to make the, the diagnosis potentially or the specific subtype. What, how, what's your typical approach of, of using uh, next-gen sequencing? Do you have an institutional approach or is it something that each physician does their own?
0: I think it's a mix of both. You know, it's evolved over time, our approach, um, to uh, incorporate next-generation sequencing um, in patients who are undergoing an evaluation for a potential MDS diagnosis. Um, I will say that... Uh, If we um, encounter a patient where we are strongly suspicious enough about the cytopenia as being potentially related to MDS, it triggers a bone marrow biopsy and aspiration. And along with that, we routinely send off um, an NGS panel. So that would imply that we have, um, by and large, already ruled out other potential, you know, non-clonal causes, you know, the cytopenias that we just described and that we feel strongly enough that the, uh, the patient should get a bone marrow biopsy. And so in the course of that, um, we will send off an NGS panel. We have an institutional panel, which is uh, clear approved, and there are about 150 genes on that. So it's a fairly broad panel. Um, but it encompasses all of the usual ones that we would be uh, curious about um and so i would say in that context um, we do that now on every patient where we're suspecting a myeloid neoplasm including mds um, but i think it's an open question as to whether this is something that we you know we want to recommend broadly
1: yeah and we have a similar process where we have an institutional panel, we do sometimes run into headaches because, you know, often they would cover it when it's an MDS or a ML diagnosis, but in the context of the workup, sometimes they tell you, well, you don't know that the patient has MDS, and you have to convince him that this is part of why I'm doing the assay because it helps me in, in, in the diagnostic evaluation. Valeria, I think this is one aspect that might be different between uh, Europe and, and the U.S. and probably other other countries. I don't know how easily it is to access some of those relatively uh, readily for, for most patients. And maybe you can also tell us more about, uh, you know, all these new acronyms, you know, ICAS and CECAS. And how does that play in into your diagnosis of MDS? We are definitely yeah. seeing more patients sent to us with some mutation and some low counts. And, uh, you know, the primary uh, referring doctor does not know exactly is this MDS? Is this, What is this?
2: Yeah, that's a very um, uh, a thing that is coming uh, up very rapidly. So everybody knows that we have uh, the possibility to study somatic mutation. So somatic mutation are um, an analysis that is asked, uh, that is required, but is not uh, um, uh, sufficient to have a diagnosis of MDS. So you have to know how to interpret the data. We have an institutional. Uh, panel, myeloid panel. It's a little bit smaller than the one uh, used in Chicago, but we have uh, at least 40 more frequently mutated genes that are evaluated. But what I want to stress is the fact that you should also know how to interpret. So how to evaluate the variant allele frequency and the, uh, so the role and the significance of the presence of the mutation in an elderly population like the one that constitute the MDS uh, patients, you may find uh, cheap, and then I come to the acronyms. So you may find a cl- uh, clonal hematopoiesis uh, that has uh, not really uh, a significance in terms of pathology and is not really re- uh, diagnostic Today, I heard a, a very beautiful presentation of Jo of Nijmegen, and he uh, showed data regarding CHIP, so the presence of TET2, SXL1 and DNMT3A mutation, but also others uh, in elderly patients in percentages that are much bigger than the 10, 15% we are used to think of. And again, he uh, mm, presented the data in a large number of patients who were anemic, some of them MDS, but indeed many just uh, anemic without MDS and with clonal hematopoiesis. 5% and 10% would be the threshold I uh, would uh, suggest to evaluate, um, to think more of MDS than CHIP. So CHIP is the clonal hematopoiesis, known also as ARCH because it's related to age. Then we have the um, Sisicus uh, that are the clonal cytopenia, still not MDS, uh, because MDS uh, uh, has to have also a clear, as I mentioned before, morphology of the bone marrow. And then the ICUS, that are the ones that we see quite frequently, especially for neutropenia, so cytopenias, that are um, of uncertain significance and we have to uh, evaluate uh, them uh, with a the follow up and during time. So I think we have a lot of acronyms but also a lot of attention to put in these patients because they may in fact evolve not only in MDS but also in time with, in leukemia and they may have also uh, Cardiovascular problems, so we really have to pay attention to these uh, findings.
1: Yeah, great points, Valeria. I, I think especially for patients who have a low PLAS count and uh, when there isn't a chromosomal abnormality, those with normal karyotype, I think that these assays can be helpful. Um, and I find it actually in, in my practice very helpful to. Um, rule out uh, MDS in some ways, so if if the next-gen sequencing is completely normal, since we know that more than 90% of patients will have some kind of uh, molecular abnormality. I had actually a couple of patients where they were referred for um, MDS, and on the next-gen sequencing, when we did it, it was completely normal. And in one of those patients, the B12 was normal on multiple assays, but because the clinical suspicion, the patient had some numbness, we ended up doing methyl malonic acid and it was actually sky high um, again a very unusual case and it turns out that b12 uh, deficiency sometimes can be quite tricky the b12 level can be quite tricky sometimes to assay uh, using that assay so I, I think that's another good uh, good point to to think about rami you know we spend a lot of time telling um, you know or educating in our talks i'm sure you do the same that mds is a cancer and should not be thought of as a syndrome or pre-leukemia or anemia or how do you how do you counsel patients with lower risk mds do you usually tell them it's a cancer do you get do you get a lot of surprise in your clinic when when patients hear that when they are coming for second opinion
3: Yeah, we do. And we do discuss with the patient that this is type of blood cancer, but, you know, obviously sometimes we we have to reassure the patients that cancer is description of the underlying biology and uh, cancers are spectrum. So somebody who's lower risk MDS, this is not a cancer that's going to be life threatening. And uh, as you recall, this was a problem in the past with the insurance companies denying many of the treatments for the patients because they would not recognize MDS as a cancer. And I think patients need to know that because even when we are going to talk about the lower risk patients, the MDS does affect their survival, whether it's direct or indirect with, you know, interaction with comorbidities. And I think, you know, you and I published on this before that 25% of the patients we even label lower risk MDS are gonna probably unfortunately die within a couple of years. Again, could be direct from the disease or indirect exacerbating comorbidities. So I think they need to know that, and uh, so we discuss it. But then again, you know, with some reassurance that it's nothing that's life threatening on the short term if they are lower risk MDS.
1: Yeah. Do you see like so like after all of this and the diagnosis is made and you are looking at the risk stratification and all these scores that are out there and you know we have a bunch of them. Now, which ones do you use clinically and how do you handle that intermediate uh, risk group in the in the revised ipss in, in your kind of day-to-day practice
0: yeah so um i tend to uh stratify my patients using both <laughs> the ipss and the ipssr or revised ipss um i consider a score of uh, you know more than 3.5 in the revised you know, IPSS as being, you know, sort of more on the higher risk end of the spectrum. Um, and, but I also pay a lot of attention, obviously, to how the patient is presenting, just in terms of being able to um, decide on what the therapeutic strategy is, you know. Um, what are the patient's goals? Um, what are their comorbidities? What's their primary Cytopenia. For most patients in the lower risk end of the spectrum, um, it's usually anemia.
1: How about you, Valeria? Do you use any of those WHO prognostic scoring systems or the MD Anderson or any of those aside from the IPSS and revised IPSS?
2: No. Actually, I, I, uh, um, my approach is very similar. So, I just do IPSS because uh, the drugs we are allowed to give are prescribable only if you have the IPSS, so uh, either either lower or higher, but uh, otherwise I uh, trust a lot IPSSR and I add, as we just mentioned, also the uh, somatic mutation analysis. So, we do NGS and IPSSR and we try to find our way with these two tools we i don't i don't use the other uh, stratification and uh, the other risk assessments
1: about you rami like you know as 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 we know none of those systems currently have any molecular abnormalities as part of part of them and aside as f3b1 which we'll talk about in a in a minute do you use those molecular uh, alterations in in prognostically Did, does your treatment decision differs if someone has acxl one or ranks one or some bad mutation when they have lower risk MDS?
3: I think in selected cases, definitely, yeah. So obviously, particularly as we were mentioning the intermediate risk group and, uh, you know, the question is always like, you know, prognosis versus tailoring treatment accordingly. And do we know that if we, for example, use hypomethylating agents with somebody with higher risk molecular features we are going to alter the natural history and i'm not sure that we know that but like let's say we have somebody who's an intermediate risk younger age and i'm on the edge but then i see a high risk mutation that's also known to be overcome by transplant like then probably i'm going to be thinking more of transplanting somebody in, in that scenario so in general yes they upstage uh, I don't know if we have enough evidence that all the treatments we apply will alter the natural history of, of that upstaging. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think it's important, for example, when you are, you know, considering anogenic stem cell transplant, starting to think somebody is higher risk to incorporate those. Uh, in the intermediate risk, uh, you know, we look at other things, you know, transfusion burden, presence of circulating blasts, uh, mutations, to try to decide. Is the best timing to go directly to transplant or just go stepwise in managing patients?
1: Do you see one last point on, on the diagnosis and prognostication? Because before we go to treatment, so how do you collaborate with your pathologist? Uh, and, you know, when when you diagnose these these patients, as you know, as, as you know, it's, it's quite tricky sometimes with these specific guidelines from the WHO about having more than 10% dysplasia in any particular line. And I, I, it can be quite challenging, you know, uh, uh, in terms of, especially if the carry type is normal and the plus count is low, and is there enough dysplasia or there isn't enough dysplasia? Do you have like a direct conversation with the pathologist or do they generally feel comfortable calling as?
0: We do. We, we have a direct conversation with them on many of our patients. Because we do recognize that this is um, it's complex, you know, as we've just discussed. Um, I do feel uh, that pathologists do see a lot of cases, so they tend, I think, to be, you know, often comfortable saying, you know, outright, we think there's enough here to call it MDS morphologically or not. There are, of course, always gray zones where it seems like uh-huh, it may be MDS, but not quite enough. And in those instances, they're often holding off on the report. You know, we have a conversation about how the patient presented and so on. Have we excluded everything we can exclude uh, in terms of other non-MDS causes? And then they're usually waiting until they get the next generation sequencing, analysis, and of course the karyotype and all of that before they stick their necks out, you know, one way or the other. So I find that um, more and more it's becoming um, an integrated kind of approach uh, where we try to get all the pieces, particularly those gray areas. You know, obviously there are some cases where it's going to be very you know, more obvious, but in those gray ones, um, yeah, we really try to, to work together and put all the pieces together and try to be as confident as we can be. Uh, and as Valeria uh, you know, alluded to earlier, there will be patients who we won't be able to make that diagnosis. And we're really, uh, what I tell those patients is, it's tincture of time, right? We keep an eye on you when we're unsure, because perhaps something might evolve um, that will make uh, the diagnosis uh, more overt.
1: Yeah, and I think this is important. You know, As you said, I think some of the pathologists, I think are more um, aggressive in their evaluation, where they actually look at the patient history and they look at the assays and look at what was done and what wasn't done and others might just look at and, you know the microscope. And, but I, I do think that integrated approach you mentioned is becoming more common and I think very helpful to kind of uh, issue an, uh, you know, an addendum or finalization after you have the carrier type and uh, other uh, results basically to, to be somewhat more certain of the diagnosis.
2: I just want to add a few words from the European side. Sure. We uh, do not have uh, all the diagnosis and the morphology uh, performed by pathologists. Uh, hematologists in Europe are just uh, evaluating the, the bone marrow smears, and only the biopsies are given to the pathologists. So the collaboration is there for the biopsy, but for the aspiration, the aspiration is our task. So, we spend a lot of time on the microscope. We know the patient, this is a good thing. So, I see basically all the bone marrow males of my patients. And uh, therefore, I know them, and I can uh, really elaborate on the diagnosis. So this is something that is present in uh, in Germany. In France, they don't even do bone marrow biopsy for all the patients, for all the cases. So you know, we uh, give a lot of attention to morphology for the moment. Then, of course, there will be immunophenotyping that is coming in, even if there are a lot of. Uh, Um, issues there because you have to have a real expert uh, um, uh, uh, cytometrist that is analyzing your data for MDS. The most important thing is to talk with a pathologist for the biopsy because still, sometimes you really need to have the biopsy data to conclude your diagnosis.
1: Yeah, and I, I think some places in the U.S. do that, although I think the general shift has been more that pathologists will make for the different, I think, Reasons in, within the US. Is this still the case, Valeria, even with, with um, you know, more junior faculty? Like, it's still like fellows are being trained to diagnose themselves, or is this also oh, yeah. starting to shift in? in uh...
2: Yes, yes, yes. We spend uh, our energy to teach them how to recognize uh, uh, these plastic cells, but also in general for morphology. I, I know it's getting more and more difficult, because the load of assistance and of patients is big, and it's very hard to spend time at the microscope like in the past. But we still spend quite a, a long time for you, know, with our undergraduate, but mostly graduate students who are f- fellows who uh, spend time in the hematology department. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think another aspect in the U.S. is I I think in Europe, generally, like the medical oncologist is a completely separate specialty from hematology. While in the U.S., it's quite often that people do both. And I think that somewhat also affects that, you know, um, having that enough experience in the lab. So the diagnosis is made, Valeria, and you know, and you've done a lot of work on erythropoiesis stimulating agents, um, which I think is yeah. one of the most commonly, probably the most commonly used treatment for MDS because anemia for lower risk is the main uh, problem that we encounter. And I want to ask you like about specific situations where, where, where they are not clear cut. So if you have a patient who has an erythropoietin level of more than 500 where we know that uh, ESA does not work as well uh, and has frequent transfusion needs. Um, this is a situation where I see often in my clinic and we know that the ESA does not work very well, but I sometimes end up using it because it's always you know, easy to use. It doesn't have a lot of side effects and the patients generally are not too excited about the alternatives when we discuss with them. Do, do, you, do you do this approach or do you not use it when... When you think that it's unlikely that it will work,
2: I I judge on the case. If the patient is very, it's elderly or very comorbid and has a lot of problems, maybe I can try even to use erythropoietic stimulating agents. Otherwise, uh, if the erythropoietin level is really high, like more than 500 units liter, which is a very rare case, I must say. then I don't even try and I propose immediately uh, an alternative treatment which in Europe can be only an experimental treatment because we are not uh, allowed to prescribe uh, hypomethylating agents in lower risk MDS. So as a matter of fact, very few patients have very high levels of uh, erythropoietin, but some may have. And extremely rare patients may not tolerate uh, erythropoietin that we have been using for decades, uh, for hundreds of patients and without any problem. In that case, I I just uh, switch or propose experimental treatment or or, uh, chelation and, and transfusions, if there are other comorbidities not allowing experimental treatment.
1: Yeah, Rami. One of the things we see with ESAs in the community is is the dosing issue. What, what what is the most common um, issues that you sh- you think people should think about when they do a dose ESAs for MDS patients, lower risk MDS patients?
3: Yeah, I think in in the USA also we see use either of like you know the erythropoietin or the darbipoietin, and I think the 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 difference between them is probably dosing. You know, you have just to have the right dosing, and in general. You know, we see underdosing uh, a little bit in the USA. Uh, I think, you know, patients should be getting somewhere between forty to 60,000 equivalent of the short-acting erythropoietin and give it like eight to 12 weeks try before assessing if it's working or not. I tend a lot of the times to start with the higher dose and then go down just to shorten that duration and be certain rather than those escalating. So I would start sometimes with 60 and then go down um we hold if the hemoglobin goes above 11 restart when it's below uh, sorry if it's above 12 we restart if it's below 11 um but uh, I, I think it's really that like the you know some of the patients come where they're getting erythropoietin every 3 to 4 weeks or like they're getting 10000 units i think that's totally inadequate dosing in, in MDS particularly
1: yeah, this is a great point because I think some people go with the renal dosing, which we know is much, much lower than what we typically use in, in MDS. I guess on the opposite end of the spectrum to you, also, I've seen patients in my clinic who are getting ESAs, whether they are at the good doses or the lower doses, but they are in the ESA for two years and they are still being transfused like once every month. And you cannot figure out exactly why they are continuing the ESA. Some people say, well, it's making the patient feel better. Uh, other people say, well, you know, we think the frequency has reduced, of course, there's no real way to to know, like, what what do you do in those situations? Have you ever added GCSF for some of those uh, other interventions before you switch to a trial or some other agent?
0: Um, I haven't, in general, added growth factors. Um, For such patients, I've usually viewed it as, you know, evidence of inadequate response, you know, and I've generally encourage them to think of alternative therapies, uh, a clinical trial, obviously, if it's available. Uh, And if a clinical trial is not available, depending on the patient in front of me, uh, it's either supportive care or hypomethylating agent. Um, So it's really someone much older who doesn't want to assume the risks, other risks of HME therapy, yeah, I've I've been okay with those patients getting you know transfusions, but um, if it's someone who uh, I think from a uh, uh point of view can tolerate you know and is anocleuside and is um, inclined to to do that, then I have um, in general done that.
1: So Valeria, you've done also a lot of work on lenalidomide, and you led one of the phase three trials in, in the non-deletion 5q, which is the most for common form of lower risk uh, MDS. So assuming you don't have those, um, you know, uh, insurance or availability restrictions, and that same exact patient we just discussed, someone with an hypo level of more than 500 and needing like frequent transfusions. Would you, would you use lenalidomide or would you use hypomethylating agent or what, what would you use in, in this situation?
2: As I mentioned to you, both drugs in non-DEL5Q are off-label. So in Europe, you may prescribe them by asking to the health authorities the permission to use them because uh, hypomethylating agents are, of course, there, but you can't prescribe and you can dose them. And the same for lenalidomide. So what I do usually is I use hypomethylating agents of label if the patient has another cytopenia beside uh, anemia. And as, the, as a matter of fact, I do respond pretty well, as you know, because you use them, but uh, you have to continue. as a, a chronic therapy. And this is... Uh, um, giving some problems sometimes in, term of, in terms of compliance. For lenalidomide, in our Phase 3 study, we showed that uh, the patients who respond with transfusion independence are the patients who have the lower level of endogenous ePO, lower than hundred um, units later. and they may respond as a matter of fact for many for a long time, as some of my patients did and still are on treatment. Uh, there are some side effects to take into account. So I think both drugs may be considered. The hypomethylating agents only for, are used only for patients who have other cytopenias, whereas lenalidomide is strictly for uh, only anemic patients. Probably yeah.
3: I mean the same, the same yeah. patient. Yeah. yeah, if I might add a little bit. So obviously because we have like almost the liberal use of the two agents here, I usually think of lenalidomide for patients with isolated anemia, as Valeria mentioned. Like you know, even if they have a concomitant cytopenia that doesn't need treatment, as like a platelet like 60 or 70, those patients typically don't respond to lenalidomide. So we restrict its use for patients that are just with isolated anemia post ESA failure. Um, we do sometimes combine it with procrit. We have the US intergroup group yeah. study based on some work we've done in the past that sometimes you do see higher responses or maybe a little bit more durable with the combination. Definitely. The other thing that I try to do, and that's what you and i published also in the past, is looking at the sequence. So if I have the choice for somebody who's purely anemic, I will go first with LEN, LEN plus Procrit rather than ASA, because like you know, we see almost to what Valeria reported, around 30% responses if we use it after ESA. But if you use it after HMA failure, the the responses drop down to like 10%. So while the responses to HMAs are preserved, whether they were used before or after LEN. So obviously in the DEL5Q, I think that's standard of care. Nobody argues about it. But then the non-DEL5Q, I would use LEN for pure anemia patients um, plus minus procrit, but before HMAs. But if there is concomitant cytopenias, I totally agree with Valeria. Like we move to hypomethylating agents, and in younger patients, obviously, just always do a good reminder for everybody that there is a subset of patients that do well with ATG plus minus cyclosporin as well.
1: So to you see on the same front again, HMA and here. So would you, with the with the availability of the oral hypomethylating agents in, in the US, both of them. Approved in, in in the last few months, would you consider using a an oral hypomethylating agent for a lower risk MDS, or what, would you not use it at this point?
0: I think at this point I would hold off. Um, there are uh, ongoing. There is at least one ongoing trial that I'm aware of in um, lower risk MDS. You know, using the oral um, decitabine and oral cytarabine. Uh, combination. So I would be more inclined to put such a patient on a trial than do it off-label because I think it's an open question right now as to what the dose, the ideal dose would be in a lower risk MDS patient. You know, there we're trying to um, walk the fine line of um, benefit versus toxicity. Like, you know, can we get a dose that is... um, you know, that would be less myelosuppressive while still preserving um, the potential for this to be effective. Uh, and I think that, you know, this is best addressed in the context of a clinical trial wherever possible. So I would try to wait for the results of the trial or, you know, get the patient on the trial if, if they were eligible uh, rather than doing it off-label.
1: Yeah, and I follow the same approach, not using them for, for the time being until we have more data. Valeria, assuming you get like the health authorities to authorize the use of hypomethylating agent in and, and someone anemic, um, you Only know, we anxiety. have data.
2: Only anemic?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so someone who's anemic mostly. And uh, we have data from the MD Anderson with three days of HMAs, and we have data that Steve Gore worked on with 10 days, and we have everything in the middle. Mm-hmm. Where do you stand on that spectrum of like, how do you dose a drug?
2: As a matter of fact, as, as, as I mentioned, we don't use it so frequently, but the MD Anderson data with the attenuated dose, uh, as they call, or as a, it's better to call them with a shorter schedule of mm-hmm. uh, w- three days, they have wonderful response rates. So uh, they are in the uh, 60%, so apparently, and even more. So apparently, uh, this approach that is a little bit uh, counterintuitive counter because we learned that we had to use it for longer time, lower dose to um, induce the hypomethylating effect. And now we have standard dose for a shorter time so it's a little bit different from our uh, con- conception of this uh, con- idea of this uh, treatment. So uh, as I, I don't know. I don't know whether this is can be an, an, um, an approach that can be applied to many patients because I have some very small experience in this sense. So I would stick, again, I would, uh, um, I would study it uh, more in depth and I would like to see in a clinical trial. uh, So to uh, compare the standard schedule to the attenuated dose and see whether they are equivalent or one is better than the other.
1: So Romney, maybe I can ask you to comment on the same issue since uh, MBS Clinical Research Consortium which Moffitt belongs to I think I've looked at that issue as well, but also maybe you can tell us about uh, use of los peterset, which you've also been involved in, and in, in, in the same exact patient, someone with anemia and with a high EPO level, but not your typical patient with the ring sidroplast for which the label is there. Would you use it in, in this situation? Right. So, for
3: the hypometallating agents, obviously, I think the standard in the USA in the lower risk had become the five days based on Dr. Lyon's paper a few years ago showing similar responses to the 522 or the 525 and less toxicity. Uh, as, as Valeria mentioned, the results from the MD Anderson uh, pilot phase two is, is promising. We just finished actually the accrual to that study through the consortium where 200-plus patients were randomized between first early start versus waiting patients to become transfusion-dependent, second versus five days ASA, three days decide to be in three days ASA. So I think that will answer the question. In practice, like because we were part of the study, to be honest, sometimes I've used it in some older patients, uh, patients that you know like it uh, in attenuated schedule with, with success. But I think to, to, to generalize that, we will need the results from this study if it shows that three days is as good as five. That would be much easier, and it makes sense to do that in the lower risk. For the as you alluded, obviously, is approved by the FDA for patients with MDS ring citroblast subtype. It's a you know a erythroid maturating agent. I think that's the term now we are using to describe it, or it it, it promotes the terminal erythroid differentiation, it's a neutralizing antibody for the TGF beta ligands. The, the, the label is for ensidroblast, but there is probably benefit beyond that, like you know in the in the PACE study uh, that was led by our uh, colleagues in Germany and with a similar compound that we 've studied in the past called sotatercept, there were responses outside the hydroblasts, and uh, you know even in the PACE study, you see that uh, in any other spicing mutations there were responses. Uh, Uh, even in patients with no splicing mutations there were responses. Obviously it's not easy to get the drug approved in that setting even in the USA to be honest at this point and many times what happens in those patients that we are currently dealing with is like they had prior LEN or hypermutilating agents so we also don't have data about the responses post that and in general if patients are heavily transfusion dependent they will not do well but where we are trying to move forward with the Lospatracept is really upfront. So we have the command study that we are trying to randomize patients between ESA and LUSPATRCEP for those patients that actually have a little bit less chance to respond to ESA. Maybe identifying that group to that, it would become the upfront strategy. Uh, so yes, sometimes we try to use it off the label in the you know, non-RS subtype, uh, but it's mainly had been restricted since the approval in that category, except on clinical trials.
1: Yeah, thanks for this comprehensive review, Rami. Quite the last option that um, we use and we and you have looked at is the use of immunosuppressive therapy. And I, I think um, there is some some good data as well in, in, in the right setting. To your, uh, you for the interest of time, because this is a great discussion and time is, is running quickly, I want to mm-hmm. discuss a little bit about some of the new agents and one interesting agent, uh, Imitalistat, which I know you do also quite a bit of uh, myelofibrosis and MPN yeah. work, and this drug uh, interfaces both um, MDS and MPN. So what's your sense of, uh, you know, the, 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 phase, the phase two was just published in JCO, in, in and there's an ongoing phase three. So what's your sense of this drug and the patients that could be candidates for it should it become available?
0: Uh, you know, my my overall sense is that um, the the drug is a little bit cumbersome to use. Is sort of, you know, what my my experience, you know, had been? Uh, we participated in the myelofibrosis trials, and then um, to some degree in some of the earlier iterations of the of the MDS trial, uh, there does seem to be a signal, you know, in patients, uh, you know, who are you know lower risk MDS who have not, you know, responded to the typical, you know, agents that, you know, we would use, you know, such as ESA therapy. Um, So I think, uh, you know, I would be uh, very curious about, uh, you know, what the results would be like in a randomized setting uh, to really sort of gauge the the level of benefit. Um, To me, it's an agent that's a little bit you know, maybe slightly more challenging to use than um, some of the other agents that we've described so far. So um, I think, you know, therein lies, lies the challenge, but um, the the early phase trials were promising just in terms of the, the potential for a for signaling this patient population.
1: Yeah, and another drug that's in advanced phase three trial testing is Roxadostat, which works in the hypoxia-induced uh, factor um, pathways. So I think in the last segment, in the last few minutes, I just want to get some some sense from from the group about where do you see management of lower-risk MDS going the next few years. It sounds like for a long time we really have not um, mostly focused on symptoms. Uh, survival was not generally the goal, quality of life. Um, and we did not have really many, a lot of drugs and things are, are changing. So maybe starting with Valeria, like, how do you see things going in the, in the next few years for lower risk MDS?
2: You know, finally, as you mentioned, we have something new to propose to our patients uh, uh, beside the uh, supportive care. And um, I think that, as Rami mentioned, uh, Patercept has still a lot to tell us because we have to use uh, the drug in a different setting than ring-sideroblast. Maybe the percentage of response will be lower, but uh, frontline would be a challenge. And in Europe, uh, a new trial is starting um, proposed by our German colleagues in which uh, Luspatacept is used in non-transfusion dependent patients. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something we still have to know how to use is at its best because it's a new drug, but I think this is something uh, leading us uh, a little bit further with treatment of uh, anemic patients. But again, different approaches and probably uh, a more refined um, um, immunosuppressive therapy. We disregarded it for too long. I think this is uh, something we should consider a little bit more uh, when uh, uh, choosing therapies. So then uh, I suppose new drugs are coming uh, uh, along the way, and we will have a lot of work to do in the next few years.
1: Rami, what do you think, and pr- probably some combinations are probably also going to be on the horizon?
2: Yeah,
3: I think one of the things first is like we have to redefine our goals because we always have focused on like alleviating cytopenia transfusion dependency, which I think is still reasonable. But like I do believe that when we restore effective erythropoiesis, we do have impact on patient's outcome indirectly even maybe. And we have to start studying who are the patients that really we should be aiming for that always rather than just settling down for the transfusion dependency. So I think our philosophy or goal or identifying patients at higher risk should be revised a little bit. And then, obviously, you know, like, I I think even, you know, what we lump as lower risk, are really a very heterogeneous group, where they, you know, the fact in erythropoiesis is, is totally different. Now we know, for example, SF3B1 mutant MDS is almost like separate category. You have the deletion 5Q. And I think as we learn more, we're going to de- dissect those groups into more homogeneous group where we understand the real defect in erythropoiesis and target that. There are some agents like, you know, I think you know, we talked about the intellistat that it's early on and, and, you know, it's an IV drug given every four weeks. But in the early studies, there is some suggestion in a small subset of patients that it may change the, you know, for example, the allele burden for the SF3B1. So we may start having some medications that may have impact. And then, as you mentioned, finally trying to find the combination of those therapies. Uh, Obviously, many times in the past, we had only limited options, so we combined them without a good rationale. Uh, But I I think as we move forward, maybe we'll have a little bit more rational to combine things together, And and I'm sure that we are going to see a lot of the combinations with Luspatricep, for example, coming forward. Some of them with good rationale, some of them just maybe combinations based on clinical activity. Um, But I I think it's exciting at least that we have at least three or four drugs with activity now in the lower risk. And hopefully we'll optimize their use with the coming clinical trials.
1: Josie, what do you think? Do you think lower risk MDS could become like diabetes or hypertension? (laughs) a patient can live with that many many years with with oh, a pill. Or, yeah.
0: that would be so nice. Well, I, I mean, I think the future is much brighter now for our patients than it once was, was, as you've heard from you know my our esteemed colleagues on the on the line. Um, that we have many more more than we did before drugs in our armamentarium. I am very I'm curious about. The potential role of some of the uh, emerging um, immunotherapy-based approaches, um, which right now are largely being studied in higher-risk disease, but you know we have um, you know molecules, for example, that are targeting the you know CD forty-seven, et cetera, and um, you know some of these are showing that they are you know reasonably well tolerated. Uh, even in combination with, with other agents. So um, I'm very curious about movement of such approaches into the lower risk space, uh, you know, and trying to figure out what, you know, the relative impact uh, that will have on our patients. So it's a very exciting time to be caring for patients with MDS and uh, trying to think through these uh, very interesting questions.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much to all of you. This was a great discussion and um, a lot of great insights. We could probably spend hours talking about all these uh, uh, drugs and uh, new directions, and uh, hopefully I'll have you in, in the future for another discussion, especially after some of the new data gets gets released in, uh, in ASH and other meetings. So thank you so much, everyone, and I uh, look forward to see you in, in the next episode. Thank you.
2: Thank, thank you. you. Bye. 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 If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe
0: on your podcast app, including Apple, Spotify, and Podbean, so we can continue to deliver expert led content to you. Follow us on Twitter at vjhemonk and join in the conversation. And finally, don't forget to visit vjhemonk.com for all the latest updates in the field.